Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And quickly she let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. Now verse 50. 
Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord had spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a little while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to my master, But he said to my master, They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Lahai Roi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So he took, she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit now, we pray, to interpret this, the very word of God. Bring us into your presence, Jesus, that we might know the welcome of grace because you paid it all on the cross for us. Mold us for yourself now, we pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. pretty common movie trope is choose wisely. How many of you can think of a movie where it's part of the hero's journey where the hero needs to make an important choice? It's all over the place in movies. I would imagine for a few of us in the room, maybe you're thinking of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? Where Indy has all of these holy grails in front of him, and the Knight Templar says, choose wisely, and good old Indy does. Choose wisely. It's all over the place in lots of Star Wars films and properties, Harry Potter. Choose wisely. That's good advice. We should take it seriously. And when it's done correctly in a movie or a book or something like that, it's inspirational when we see our hero doing just that, choosing wisely. But let's think about it this way. Choosing is more than just a movie trope. It's actually a little zeitgeisty. A little bit of the spirit of the age. Consider, in so many different ways, we live in an age of unlimited possibilities. And therefore, unlimited choices. Or at least it seems that way. Personally, for example, we're told you can be anything you want to be. Personally, bodily, job where you live, and so on, anything you want. Always there's endless choice in front of us. But the flip side of that 
is that that can actually be pretty fatiguing. And we can feel a lot of pressure because there are so many choices in front of us. Sociologists have called it the paralysis of choice. We have so many different things to choose. What do we choose? If any of you have been to Amy's Omelette House up, up Cuthbert Avenue, that menu, right? It's not just for me, my sweet spot for diners and omelets, eight to 10. That's all I need. Amy's has hundreds, and I'm scared to go there because of the paralysis of choice. Which one do I get? There are too many options. That's what life can feel like sometimes, and it is accelerating. We have more choices than ever before. Think about this. I don't have scientific proof, but I think it's true. What do you want to do when you grow up? Was a question that a human being would ask to another human being? It only became a common or widespread question in the 20th century. Yeah, pockets of it before the 20th century, sure. But by and large... And that's the easiest question in the world for a kid to ask. What do I want to be when I grow up? That is new. It's novel in the history of our world. So many different choices. And I've mentioned a couple of times here on Sunday that this paralysis of choice is one of the factors, sociologists will say too, as to why young people are more anxious about the future than any generation on record beforehand. What do we choose? We're kind of pinballing between two different things. Life is weird. Newsflash. It really is. Here's how it's weird in part. And part of my job as a preacher is to explain scriptural sanity into a world that's really weird. Two things are messaged to us. These two. You control nothing, but you can choose everything. You control nothing... But you can and should choose anything and everything. Think about these two messages. So you control nothing in so many different ways. And by and large, I don't disagree. We've become more aware, culturally, academically, etc., about larger macro forces that shape and even determine our micro lives. Nature and nurture. Our genetics, your genetics are really pretty determinative of your personality, of how long you're going to live, of what you're going to die of, and so on. And on the nurture side, we are incredibly shaped by the microenvironments in which we grow. But then larger factors shape and control us that are outside of our control as well, whether it's environmental decline, large-scale economic factors, systemic oppression, all of these things that we're increasingly aware of, bottom line, you control a lot less than you think you do. And you can choose anything you want. That doesn't make any sense for both of these things to be operative. But even more personally, when it comes to muddling through your life and my life, are you feeling a little bit of destabilization because you've got to make a decision about something? A choice, or a series of choices, and you just don't know. And you feel a little bit stuck. Or if that's present into the future, what about the past? Do you ever find yourself circling down the rabbit hole of regrets and what-ifs and if-onlys? If only I didn't choose that. 
If only I had gone in this direction and not that direction. If only, if only, if only, if only. But here this morning, we have an opportunity and an invitation from the living Lord to a different way and mode of being. We talk here on Sunday morning about third-way walk and worldview for followers of Jesus. This is a way that if you're a follower of Jesus, you can be different, namely not circling down that rabbit hole. The story of Isaac and Rebekah. It's a meandering story. It's a long story. It's a warm story. And it's a story that gives us a window into how God works in the world. It's a great story. And the different mode or way of being is this. It's this. You can relax. You can relax. You don't need to be so anxious and stressed out. And actually, you can relax and be more decisive in your life at the same time. Because God's in charge. Because God is sovereign. He's in control. We'll talk about that theologically, but then also it's an incredibly practical thing for us to live and lean into. So thinking about how God is in control of all things, let's go two parts from here. Dependence and decisiveness. Dependence and decisiveness. You may have noticed, and I guess I actually told you explicitly, this is a long story, right? And we didn't even do the whole story, the whole chapter. And for some of you, maybe in the room or watching online, you might be thinking, I picked the absolute wrong Sunday to be here because this is going to be an interminably long scripture reading. Well, you've just outed yourself as a modern person. Back in the old days, in ancient times, there was less to do, longer attention spans, and in Jewish tradition, for example, this would have been one of those stories where a rabbi or in the home would have said, hey, let's read the story of Isaac and Rebekah meeting. You would have gone, wow, we get to have this story again. Let's settle in. And when biblical narratives take their leisurely time, it's for us to notice. It's for us to take a closer look at what's going on. Enjoy, luxuriate, notice. And what's one of the big takeaways from this story for me? Every little step of the story here, God is orchestrating everything. God's in charge. God's in control. God is making this happen. And in the theological tradition of the Christian church, this has been called things like sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. He's king. Providence, God guides all things. And I've mentioned to you before from one of our confessional standards, the Heidelberg Catechism, one of my favorite questions and answers. What do we understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God, by what, this is what it is, the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God controls all things. And I should qualify and say, it's not a uniform opinion within the Christian tradition that God really is in control of all things, but for my money, I think that's what the scriptures teach pretty clearly, very clearly, actually. And I want a God like this. I don't want to worship a God who is as freaked out and surprised when things go a certain direction as I am. And I want to pray to a God 
that will come back and answer to prayer with either a yes or a no, and not a, hey, give me a break, I'm doing the best I can up here, right? So God's in charge of all things. And look how God's sovereignty plays out here. Abraham, towards the end of his life, spoiler alert, he dies next week. We're going to get to that. But the line needs to continue. God has continued that through Abraham's offspring, multiple, many, many, innumerable descendants, stars in the sky, sand on the seashore, all the families in the earth are going to be blessed by you, God told Abraham. Well, his line needs to continue. And so he tells his intriguingly unnamed throughout the story chief servant, not just any servant, but we see from verse 2 that he's in charge. He's the chief. Go not around here, but go back to my old homeland and see if you can find a wife from there. Bring her back here so that Isaac can marry her. And so the servant sets out step by step by step. And every step of the way, it is so evident to me in this story that every step of the way, he's depending upon God. He's praying. He's waiting upon God. He's worshiping God. This is a god breathe journey. I'm in a movie mood here this morning, which is ironic because at this point, I probably watch less than five movies a year, but here, here we go, another movie. The Apostle with Robert Duvall, maybe about 20 years old right now. So Robert Duvall, his character in the movie, has an ecstatic Christian conversion experience and becomes what we would call Pentecostal or charismatic Christian. And as he walks throughout the movie, he's always talking to God. And I think it's actually, this guy has a lot of flaws, the character, but his faith is not belittled. So I actually think it's a positive portrayal of Christian faith. But as he walks, and he does a lot of walking, he's always mumbling to God. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm walking, Lord. Thank you for being with me, Lord. And Lord, where do I go? Should I go this way, Lord? Should I go that way, Lord? Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That character reminds me a little bit of this servant here. He's depending upon God every step of the way. For example, verse 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. This is after he travels from the land of Canaan to the old country, Mesopotamia to Nahor. Grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the stream of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and all who say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And then what happens? Next verse. Before he had finished speaking, behold... Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. It's happening. And as they continue to connect together, again, this servant is dependent upon God for all of it. Verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kingdom. Relax. And we should too. Lean into this paradigm of the dependent servant, trusting that God in his providence and sovereignty really is in control of all things. I love verse 21, the understated anticipatory joy as the servant waits. 
the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Relax and depend upon God. That means in your life, whether you're facing choices or otherwise, God's sovereignty, God's control of all things in Christ, okay, yes, choose wisely, but the pressure's off to choose perfectly because God's got this. Do your best, choose wisely, but it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. Although we should try, like I just said, because God really is in charge of all things. I want to say something more culturally and then we'll get back to personal again. I'm going to talk more about this in the podcast that Emily and I are going to record this week. But there's been a shift since ancient times pretty progressively to the modern times where what was once, as we think about human personhood, an emphasis on mind, body, and soul, increasingly through the centuries, there's less emphasis on those things and the emphasis has shifted forward to the will, to choice. That's the really important thing right now. And it's come down here in the present day, all this emphasis on what we might choose on our choices till we get to the point now when what is true is what you feel, no matter what, and you need to actualize those choices all the time. That's the messaging. You've got to choose. You've got to choose. You've got to choose. You've got to self-determine over and over and over again. We get that in advertising. It's one of the effects of social media. Social media is one of the causes of paralysis of choice. It's also the cause of FOMO, but also paralysis of choice. Oh, look, who's doing this? This looks really fun. I want to do that. I'm going to choose 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 that. Now, don't get me wrong. Especially if a person or a people group is disadvantaged in one way or another, being encouraged to take more agency and take control of one's own choices, that's a really good thing. But the net effect, I think, for us culturally, all of this unlimited choice all the time, movies again, it's like we're living in a green screen. You know what green screen is? The special effects where if you go behind the scenes, saw Guardians of the Galaxy last night with my girls, it was awesome. And most of that movie was not, act here's a spoiler alert, it wasn't actually filmed in outer, in outer, outer space, right? So it was actually filmed in Atlanta on studio lots. And if you watch behind the scenes making of sorts of things, you have all these people in very awkward looking motion capture suits. And say you're on a rocky planet. You'll have a little rock here, a little rock here that's physically there. But then it's green screens all the way around, right? And they fill in all of that digital effects later on but it's not real, and increasingly we have our antennas up to say, wait a second, that looks fake. That's where we are with being told that we have so many choices, but we actually don't. We might be able to say, okay, I can choose this, I can choose this, but all the rest of that stuff, all the way to the horizon, is just a lie. It's not true. I was at a concert a little while ago, and from the stage, the singer said, I want to tell you all, I love you all, you can be anything you want to be, and don't let anybody tell you that you can't be what you want to be. Just go out and choose it and do it. And the crowd did not say, okay, let me weigh that for a second, and I'll get back to you as to whether this is a good idea. It just, it, it intuitively has the ring of truth. But I turned to a buddy of mine and said, 
I'm going to take James Harden's place and start for the Sixers next year. I might not be as good, but I'll at least be in good shape and, and well-conditioned for it. But that's not true. I'm not starting for the Sixers next year. I can't do it. So there are natural limits to what we can and can't do. We're healthier if we leave those choices off the table. Just relax. And now back to personally. Are you destabilized because there are a set of choices or life decisions in front of you and you just don't know? Depend upon God. Say, God's sovereign, he's got this, and you can just relax. Here's some advice. If you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're not, maybe this can be an on-ramp to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Treat your anxiety as an invitation. Treat your anxiety as an invitation to depend upon God. At least for me, maybe for you, I am anxious on a day-to-day -day basis much more than I even realize or recognize. It doesn't even register. It just feels normal, but it's anxiety. Ask God to grow in the discipline, the habitus of spirit, where when that anxiety is going, you flag it. You recognize it and say, God, take this anxiety and let me depend upon you for this exact thing that I am being anxious about right now. Treat your anxiety as an invitation. And say, hey, I'm going to act on this. I'm going to cry out for the Spirit's help, that I, that I would know the Spirit's presence in my life in a deeper way. But whether you're here this morning or watching online as a Christian or a non-Christian, understand this. Whether your faith is strong or weak or non-existent or in between, God is there either way. And he's in charge. He's sovereign either way of all things. And if you are a follower of Jesus, keep track. As you depend upon God and grow in that spiritual discipline, remember, keep record, whether it's a journal or talking with friends or whatever it is. Hey, last week, I was really anxious. I treated that anxiety as an invitation. I was depending upon God more, and God showed up. And remember that for next time. When I was in college, out in western Pennsylvania, I was rummaging around the old farmhouse where my dad grew up with his sister and my grandma, Jessie, and I found Grandma Jessie's old Bible. If you can picture those old marbled leather KJVs, King James Bibles, with a tiny, tiny print and the zipper around it, it said, Jessie, see anger on it. And I was, I was flipping through, and all over the place, Grandma Jessie had made this note in the margins, also very small, but in grand Victorian handwriting, T and P, T ampersand P. And I had no idea what that meant, so I went to Mr. Googly, said Bible, T and P, trusted and proved. So my grandma Jessie would spend a lifetime, she read her Bible every day, depending upon God, not a perfect woman, but none of us are, depending upon God, and when God showed up and did something and answered a prayer, when it was based on this scripture passage or that verse related to it in one way or another, T and P, trusted and proven. And people have had harder lives than my grandma Jessie, but she didn't have an easy one. And I imagine that she used that record to herself to say, God is here. He's in charge. He loves me. He's at work. And then also, if you're somebody that's skeptical of spiritual realities, I don't want to sound too flippant when I say this, but I'll put it this way. 
there's no God above that's in charge of all things, it really is up to you. Your whole life, completely, is all up to you. And there's no buffer, there's no qualifier on the immense pressure upon you that you really do need to choose wisely. Because that's all you got. It's sort of a King Georgie, good luck. But instead we can rest in God's sovereignty instead. I want to talk about Rebecca, but let me say one more thing here. You might make the objection. Now, wait a second. In this story here, God's acting all over the place. I don't see it in my own life. I, I, I don't hear. I don't sense God. God's showing up in tons of direct ways in this story of Isaac meeting Rebecca. That's not how it is for me. Two quick things. One, that's an incredibly enculturated view here in the West. Jacques Ellul, French philosopher, 1964, the te Technological Society. A strangely prophetic book where he said, our technologies are getting so immense that we don't need to depend upon anything else in our lives except our technologies. Boy, was he wrong. Just kidding. Even with chat GPT and AI, he's saying there is a future here in the West where technology is going to crowd out our awareness of everything else. And that's exactly where we are. So if it seems obvious to me and you from a secular perspective, there's no God deeply enculturated at the same time. Not the majority report of people around the world and throughout the ages. But then if we also go back to the story here and say, it must have been easy for that servant and Rebecca because God's acting all over the place. If you go back again and read the story, he is not. In this sense, one of the most intriguing aspects of this whole story, Genesis chapter 24, is that God does nothing directly in this whole story which he does all over the place in a lot of other Genesis stories. God speaks, God acts, God shows up, God sends this, God does that. God is talked about in this story. But nobody in Genesis 24 sees or hears God. And so we can depend as well. Dependence, and now more briefly, I know this is a long sermon and a long passage, about decisiveness. Rebecca. Rebecca in this story is a powerhouse, a powerhouse of energy and action, a real decisive person in every way. When we meet her, for example, she is all action. There are 11 verbs of which Rebecca is a subject at the beginning of the passage, verses 16 and 20. She went down, filled her jar, came up. She said, she let down her jar, gave him a drink. I will draw water. She emptied her jar. She ran again to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. 11 actions in four short verses, and the word quickly is repeated over and over and over again, especially unusually so for a woman in this ancient Near Eastern context. It's she that is the one that pulls the trigger on hospitality. Verse 25, she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room for you to spend the night. Come on over. And she is the one that makes the decisive decision to go Later on in the story, verses 58 and 59. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. And so she does. And they went away. And so this whole wonderful love story at the end of the chapter, when Isaac and Rebecca meet each other for the first time, under the sovereignty of God, it's Rebecca's decisiveness that drove the whole thing. 
And granted, it's not mentioned explicitly here in this passage that Rebecca is believing, trusting God, obeying, and that sort of thing, but that is the almost unanimous interpretive tradition report in both Jewish and Christian circles after this story. With appreciation, Rebecca here in Genesis 24 has been called the quote-unquote female Abraham, specifically in this connection. There is a strong parallel between Abraham, all those chapters before, being called by God to leave Mesopotamia and to go to Canaan to be part of the promises of the covenant that God is going to do through Abraham. Very similarly, from the same part of the ancient Near East, Rebekah is the one that is called and then responds and moves into the promised land to be part of the ongoing nature of this covenant blessing And the language of the Abrahamic covenant is even repeated to Rebecca at the end of the story when the others say to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, lots of descendants, and may your offspring possess. That's the same language used to Abraham. So we may emulate Rebecca here as well. Because God is sovereign, just go ahead and decide. God's got this. Choose. Move forward. Be decisive. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, for God works all things together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. One time years ago at my first church, there was a guy at church that didn't fully trust my leadership, which is okay. I'm not sure I would have trusted my 25-year-old leadership either. But I was trying to move the church in a certain direction, and this guy didn't like that direction and said, Jim, are you able to tell me that you are 100% absolutely certain that this is the direction that our church is supposed to go in? And I said, no. But I prayed about it. I thought about it. I talked to people about it. And somebody's got to make the choice. And yeah, we're going to do this. I hope it works. I don't know for sure. And I said, by the way, Is that how you make decisions for yourself and for your family with 100% absolute certainty all the time? They said, no, but you're a pastor. I was like, okay, I I don't know what I can say here. But instead, be decisive, move forward. And this is where I'll close. We are able to relax and be dependent upon God and be more decisive in our lives and think about how you might choose. Maybe it's a financial thing, maybe it's a job thing, maybe it's a relational thing, a change thing, whatever it is. Relax and be decisive under God's sovereignty, but then finally under God's mercy. One of the main upshots of this chapter is that the line of Abraham will live to see another generation by the grace of God. First it was only Abraham and barren Sarah, but then Isaac but Isaac alone. Now it's Isaac and Rebekah, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. The line continues all the way to the one, Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross and rose again to pay the penalty for sin, that we might be forgiven, that we might come to him in faith and say, God, not only are you in control of all things, but you love me through and through in my wise choices and my absolutely stupid, stupid, dumb stuff that I do and sinful stuff. You cover all of it so we can relax and make a way.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.